This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Dr. Marsha Webb, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, you're just down the road uh, teaching at Seattle Pacific University here in our area. And what we're going to be talking about today is moving toward a realistic and and sort of meaty and satisfying theological account of mm-hmm. mental illness. By the way, we're going to use terms like mental illness, psychological disorder, 
we're just going to use these terms interchangeably. There are good reasons for using some over the other, but that's more of an academic thing. And we're just going to, we're talking more off the cuff here today. But I want to start with like, what are some examples of like a really bad theology of, of mental illness? Just so we know like, oh, this is the kind of thing we're improving upon. And my first idea was like one that says, well, all mental illness is demons. That is technically a theology of mental illness. It It is a theological map and it mm-hmm. says it's always demons. So anytime you have any anxiety or depression, exercise the demons. Well, I think almost everybody listening to the show would agree that is not a very good theology of mental illness. Have you come across any other sort of poorly thought out or really damaging theologies of mental illness that you would also like to give as an example of the kind of thing we're trying to improve upon? Well, another type of belief or lay theology that people have, which can be very problematic, is the idea that we should always have joy as Christian and that we um, have access to joy at every moment. So no Christians should ever experience depression. No Christians should ever feel anxiety, that these are just not part of the Christian life. And if you are experiencing them, you're doing something wrong. You lack faith. You potentially don't have a certain anointing by the spirit that you should have. So that's another belief or a a lay theology that's very problematic. Yeah. And, uh, you know, prevalent enough that I'm sure a lot of people listening will recognize it. Yes. It strikes me that that view basically is sort of a miraculous view of the of the neurological. Like as I become become a psychologist myself in, in training you know, I'm learning about people's elevated states and their depressed states and mm-hmm. just the kind of natural cycles that the body has, um, mm-hmm. that the that the mind has. We we have a bunch of serotonin in this moment and we sort of pay for it in a later moment. And the idea that that, that whole thing could be disruptive disrupted spiritually or something such that no, you would never, you would never experience the natural down, like the natural consequences of the flip side of a really elevated experience is really just saying it's miraculous. And Christians just have this God miracle in their brains that other people, obviously people wouldn't use that language, but that's really what they're describing is something that's so untenable with just what we know about how brains work. Yes. And also it's untenable with how we are discovering that brains develop from childhood forward. So for example, if a child is exposed to trauma repeatedly throughout their developmental years, that will have an impact on the brain and it will have an impact on the neurological circuitry in the brain and potentially their moods and the things that frighten them, how acutely aware they are of their environments, whether or not they're hypervigilant. So those are some things that happen that children experience and that have a long lasting impact on their um, their later lives. Right. I wanna start by zooming out a little and just ask, what made you interested in working at the intersection of theology and psychology or theology and mental health in the first place? In some ways, I think my life prepared me for this. It sort of centered me in this question of how do you integrate these two fields? And I wasn't raised in a Christian home, or at least at the time that I was raised, people in my family weren't Christian. There was a lot of discussion about how 
the church and religion was faulty. And I was raised in the middle of that discussion. And from an early age, I thought religion was kind of illogical and I wasn't a Christian. So much to my surprise, I became a Christian in my early adolescence. And I didn't have, even though I had this very powerful experience of God and the love of God that I couldn't deny, I had no way to understand that. And I had been raised to value science and logic. And suddenly I had this experience that I couldn't explain or understand, but I also couldn't deny it. And my faith experience, my understanding of my experience of the love of God also opened my eyes up to a lot of things that were happening around me, including the fact that in my family, there were people that were struggling with mental illness. I wasn't I was an early teenager. I just wasn't aware of those things. And suddenly I could see some of the problems. And I went to church and I read books and I just, I didn't know how Christianity was related to any of these things. And I just wanted to understand what does God think about this? How does God understand this? What is God's response to this? And I myself started to deal with depression. And again, I didn't know how God thought about that. And I wanted to understand. And I felt for many years, I felt like I must be failing as a Christian, um, that other Christians, you know, could harness joy instantaneously. And I just couldn't do that. I eventually was able to get my PhD in clinical psychology. And also I got a master of divinity and I became a professor. I was a therapist for many years. And one of the things that I observed more and more is that I apparently was not the only person who struggled with these questions. I had many students um, tell me about their own questions and I had clients, one of whom I talk about in, in, a, in a book that I wrote who felt sure that she was destined for hell because she struggled with these issues. She had depression and anxiety. And so eventually at one point, my Dean suggested, he used the phrase of theology of mental illness. And he said, you should, you know, write about this for a particular lecture series that we have at SPU. And when he used that phrase, a theology of mental illness, it was just electrifying. It was just, I just looked back and I said, my gosh, that's what I've been doing for decades. I've been trying to understand a theology, a way of uh, looking at mental illness from the perspective of Christianity, biblical Christianity. I haven't had that term or that phrase in my mind, but that's what I'm doing. And so I wrote the lecture and eventually that did turn into a book. And I did write the book in part because of these students that I saw again and again and again, who were struggling so much. And I thought about my own struggle and how I felt over the years that God had helped me to see some ways that Christianity might understand mental illness. And these ways were different than some of the ways that I saw some church people understand mental illness. Yeah, I just got to say how much I resonate with your own story. I mean, if I just take out a couple of things that you say and slightly rephrase them, I have struggled with anxiety my whole life since at least third mm -hmm. grade. My mom mm -hmm. and my grandpa, her dad, also uh, had panic attacks. And I also uh, have come to love science and logic, but have also had, I have had recurrent religious experiences. And in one sense, that's the whole reason that this podcast exists with me at the helm is mm -hmm. it is, you know, one way of thinking about this entire show is a place for me to make sense of all those things together. 
because um, it does seem wrong and even intellectually dishonest for me to pretend that I don't have the kind of religious experience that I do have, in fact. And yet uh, we live in an ordered uh, and discoverable universe where mm -hmm. we can use logic and science, uh, empirical and other kinds of measures to learn, think about, make sense of the world. Uh, and so in a sense, that's the whole, that's the whole game of why, why we're here talking right now is because of how much I uh, relate mm -hmm. to your own uh, story there. So thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. So I want to ask about the stakes and you, you've been, you've begun sort of talking about this, right? Why is it important that we do have some development of, of a theology of mental illness, of psychological disorder. You know, you've mentioned students, you mentioned your own story, my right. story. Um, we've talked about people being exercised or kicked out of church because they must have a demon. You talked about uh, adverse childhood experiences and how those have massive effects on, on people into their adulthood. And we would probably both agree that those have nothing to do with their sin or, you know, anything like that. Uh, and of course, Jesus, th there's a follow-up to that. Well, maybe their parents sinned, but Jesus addresses that directly in mm -hmm. the gospels and says, no, it's not because their parents sinned. So it's something else, right? Um, but do you have anything else to say about like the stakes? What happens if the church can't come to a better theological understanding of this kind of thing? Well, for one thing, I think that the church absolutely can. And I feel like in my own life, I have come to peace with the way I understand mental illness and Christian faith as it relates to mental illness. But I also, I just don't believe it's possible for the church to avoid this issue. It's not a viable option. Uh, we're talking about our children. And I say this because I've, I've seen so many students who have come to me and told me about their experiences in their families when they went to their families and said, I'm having this difficulty or that difficulty. And they were told exclusively, you must pray. You must read the Bible. You're, you're not being positive. You're not showing joy. And that's a sin. This is the next generation of believers. And how do we expect the next gener generation of believers to take on the mantle of the faith if we have not heard them, if we haven't understood their concerns. So when I've seen these students, my heart just breaks for them because I know it's just unnecessary for them to feel this kind of alienation um, that they feel from their families. I've had a number of them tell me that they've decided to lead the church because they don't feel that the church addresses the, the real concerns that they have or the concerns that other people they know have. And it just feels too untenable for them to continue in the church when they're told that they lack faith for something that they don't feel like they, they can control. So I feel sometimes that there may be this whole silent generation of the walking, wounding out, walking wounded out there in our culture, people who perhaps they still love God and they still want to have that connection. They just don't know how to do it because the one solution that they were always given ignored important experiences that they were having and they couldn't ignore those experiences but they also on some level they still love God and want that connection with God so I don't feel like it's possible 
Um, I think that this is something that the church is going to have to deal with. Psychology is not going to go away because it does provide help for so many people. And our research is becoming more and more sophisticated. So we need to think about how, how do we help people in the 21st century and beyond to be able to be thinking Christians? How do we help people to love God with their minds? And that's what I'm about, to love loving God with your whole heart and soul and with your mind as your mind understands psychology and the brain and in particular mental disorders. Yeah. So I want to talk about, I want to talk about stigma because this Mm -hmm. is a big, maybe the first kind of sort of the first issue to deal with, right. As we, as we work through this and I actually recently found some empirical evidence around stigma in the church because of a paper that I happened to recently write. Mm -hmm. And there is an interesting study in 2007, uh, a survey of almost 300 Christians who had experience with the church around a mental health issue. And uh, the researcher by the name of Stanford Mm -hmm. found that a third, about a third of people said their church made them feel like the mental illness was the result of personal sin Also a third said that their church suggested that you or your loved ones did not really have a mental illness, even though a mental health professional had diagnosed them. So about a third report denial. And of the people that had a negative interaction with their churches around mental health, one in five reported their church considered it to be caused by a demon. And one in five reported that it was considered a result of a lack of faith or of personal sin. So I don't know if you know of any additional empirical evidence to add to that bit from 2007, but is there more that we know about, like empirically about the stigma that people face or are our anecdotal accounts like sufficient given that there is at least some sort of objective data as well? Well, I think I'm a familiar with that study by Stanford and it was very helpful for me when I um, wrote my book, but I think it also talks about how some of those individuals were told that they shouldn't be on medication, that they should get off their medication, which is kind of scary uh, from my perspective, because medication really can be incredibly helpful for people. Mm -hmm. Um, But there is a lot of other research and it continues. And I would say that we need more research. Anecdotal evidence is great in terms of people's stories, but what all research is, is that it's an attempt to gather information and observations in a systematic way. It's just an attempt to find out instead of one person's experience or one person's observations, multiple observations, and to be systematic about how we gather data from those uh, those observations. So that's really all research is. It just expands upon one person's personal experience and it tries to eliminate bias as it gathers data. So I think that research is really helpful. And for example, the study you mentioned had hundreds of participants. So what some of the things that I've seen in the research that I've looked at is this idea again, that if you don't have joy, you must be lacking faith. So it's a sin not to have joy. And I should say something here. I'm not against positive thinking, or I'm not against joy, but what I'm, I'm against is judging people or condemning people. If they're struggling to feel that if for some reason they can't just snap their fingers and change their mood. 
So I think that joy is great and optimism is great, but I don't expect that this is something that people can always produce in themselves. And I don't think we should judge people if they're struggling along their path as Christians. There's also other research that does show that mental illness, particularly symptoms we don't understand like psychosis, have some sort of demonic basis and that exorcism should be the um, prescribed intervention as opposed to medications. Fortunately, um, almost everyone I've known who has come to me and said, you know, I, I went to the church, I told them about my symptoms and they performed an exorcism. Almost every single person left the church after that who has told me about those those wow. events in their lives. There's this tremendous sense of alienation from the church that can happen when that takes place. It also looks like these particular ideas are more commonly held in faith communities that are more conservative, that have a certain approach to understanding the scriptures that tends to be more literal and that um, doesn't take into consideration, for example, historical issues or cultural issues that are embedded in the scriptures, in the author's meaning, that don't consider, for example, the, the literary genre of the the scriptures such as, uh, is it a poem? Is this an analogy? Is it hyperbole? And that also tend to emphasize one scripture while ignoring other scriptures that might pre present kind of a different perspective. So example, there are scriptures that tell us to, to have joy and that try to encourage us, but there are also scriptures that talk about the incredible pain that heroes of the faith um, experienced. And if we emphasize one scripture over others, we're going to come up with a distorted perspective. So it looks like more conservative um, churches tend to, you tend to see this more in churches that put more emphasis on the activity of the spirit. Also, you're less likely to see this, for example, in Catholic churches or in the Episcopalian church. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, the the paper that I wrote about the stigma in, it was a paper about stigma for mental health and the concept of spiritual bypassing, mm -hmm. which is uh, a concept I'm, I'm fairly new to, and I'm trying to, to eventually get like a, a better grasp on it. But as I understand it, the idea would be any kind of attempt to sort of shortcut a process of working through or feeling or experiencing negative, you know, mental states, suffering, loss, grief, whatever, betrayal, and like get past that quickly with something like, well, I, joy comes in the morning or, well, you know, God did this for a reason, angel, you know, heaven needed another angel. And that, you know, this strikes me as another one of the stakes, because if we don't process you know, there's all kinds of multiple modalities of trauma treatment, of therapy more broadly. I mean, many, many different types of therapists sort of all agree on a central point that like avoiding pain, avoiding, you know, negative emotional experiences does not help in the long run. We have mm -hmm. to, the only way out is through, basically. You have to feel it, mm -hmm. process it. You have to identify it. You know, maybe you have to journal or talk with a friend or talk with your therapist, uh, talk with your pastor, pray about it, whatever. But to just get past, just to say, oh, well, that's not there, basically never works in the long run. And so that strikes me as another one of one of the stakes here. We, If our theology of mental illness leads to 
either stigma or connected with stigma, a quick moving past it, a quick spiritualizing of it so that we can just like get it out of our view, then that's also a big problem. Yes. And I would say when I hear you talk about that, I think one of the things that is unfortunately potentially attractive about that particular approach to mental illness is that people feel uncomfortable about suffering. And it's hard to um, work through something as opposed to just pushing it aside and saying, you can snap your fingers and this is all over with. Mental illness is confusing and mysterious. It's related to the mystery of being human. It's related to the mystery of suffering. So to try to work through something feels like a very convoluted and difficult path. And yet that's life. And people who do work through that convoluted and difficult path, they can come out so much wiser and so much stronger, but it's because they took that difficult way and didn't try to just distract themselves from the problem or push the problem away or pretend that there was no problem. You know, another thing that I wanted to mention to you, because you don't know my work as well as I know your work, because my work has not been published, but my own in-process research is around spiritual harm and abuse. And mm -hmm. the scale that I have developed that is hopefully going to be published fairly soon, uh, one of the factors, one of the subscales is around medical care. And so mm -hmm. there are there are reports in the spiritual abuse literature, people report, you know, basically being not taken to medical care and prayed over instead, mm -hmm. uh, being told, yeah, medication uh, is is not helpful or, you know, we're just going to, all we need is prayer, you know, stuff like being deterred from seeking mental health treatment, even if that's non-medication oriented, like, well, you don't need to go to therapy. You Here are some verses, you know, just pray these and and God will supernaturally heal heal your depression. And one way that I think of it primarily is like people just kind of jumping out of their lane, you know, like trying trying to work above their pay grade, which I I do think is a, is an inherent problem probably in all religions with all religious leaders because there is such an absolute kind of authority to religious authority that wise pastors and priests, I think over time, recognize that they have to control for that and they have to sort of recognize the temptation there and realize when they need to refer someone to a doctor, a psychiatrist, whatever, you know, and that they don't have power that, you know, and, and, and expertise that extends beyond their own domain. But I think that I can understand how pastors who feel called directly by the God of the universe you know, feel like, oh, this is within my domain, but really it's it's not, and they don't know what the hell they're talking about, and they can do great harm by stepping outside their lane. I don't know if you had any response to, to that or the spiritual abuse angle here. I would say, I mean, there's a difference between being called by the God of the universe and being the God of the universe. Mm. And there's a difference between uh, being a servant and being the savior. I do think that we're called to be servants, but not the savior. And, and part of that truly is staying in your own lane and saying, and having humility and saying, I don't know what's happening with this person. I don't know. And I do know that there are people out there that spend their whole lives trying to study this and work with other professionals. And even if you ask, uh, you know, someone who has studied mental, a mental disorder their whole lives, they will tell you that we're still 
in the dark in many ways about about some aspects of mental illness and we're still learning and growing and this field is in its infancy in hundreds of years they'll look back and say wow they just they were so primitive in their understanding uh, but they did their best and they were able to help some people and but we've learned so much more since then so i think that humility is enormously important <laughs> yeah um for professionals in general and for pastors, I do think so. I think I knew a little bit about your your expertise and awareness in the area of spiritual abuse. And this does sort of overlap with that because I do see these people and they are just the walking wounded and it breaks my heart. And when they somehow manage to believe in God in spite of what they experience, I think that's a miracle mm. uh, because I think there must truly be a very powerful God in the universe that somehow has been able to communicate to this person in spite of what they learned and experienced, you know, and, and they had to somehow work through all of those, those messages that came in the most dysfunctional, painful ways and, and somehow connect to the God who is there. One of the things that you bring up in your work, in your book, is this connection between how we feel about ourselves and then things that we assume must be true about God. I mean, maybe call it a kind of projection, right? A, a self-feeling theological projection or self-image, God image projection. I am fascinated by this idea. And so I just kind of want to give you runway to say anything you possibly want to say about this topic. It's something that I just find so fascinating. I think is really, really underlooked at under talked about our ability, I mean, except for people like Freud or whatever, like who say the whole thing is just daddy projection. I mean, I think that that's bullshit, but I do think that there is so much reason to believe that more, more at a more nuanced level. Yeah. We just assume, well, God must be like us or like my dad or like my, the people around me or these authority figures or whatever. So anything you want to say, and then how's that going to connect to a theology of mental illness? I think that I'll put it this way. I'm fascinated when you talk about projection and the idea of God, because I do think that believers in general do project onto God, but God is not unsophisticated about this. <laughs> we project mm. onto everything. And I think that the God who is, the God who is really there, who is really God, that God can get through our projections. And sometimes I've had this experience myself. Sometimes God works for years with us to get through our projections that we have this idea of God as, for example, angry with us or punitive or restrictive in some ways. And God works with us for years through our experiences and, and our relationships uh, all kinds of things through books, through teachers to help us to understand, hey, maybe I'm not that that critical voice in your head. Maybe I'm not restrictive. Maybe I'm generous and loving and full of grace. Maybe you can't even imagine how loving I am. But we do, I think, connect our projections with God and also our ideas of ourselves are often connected with our ideas of God. And I think this is because when you think about it, the idea of the self is an abstract idea and the idea of God is also abstract. It's it's something that's sort of, you know, you can't sort of touch the self or you can't touch God. You can't like put the self on a table or put um, God on the table. These things are abstract. And also our ideas about 
the nature of the self or the, or the characteristics that, that comprise the self or God are also abstract. So the idea of goodness is abstract. The idea of wisdom is, is abstract. The idea of strength is abstract. And the way we think about those abstract ideas, wisdom, strength, goodness, we will attach those to God. So if we think it's weak to suffer and it's imperfect to suffer, then we can't imagine that God could suffer. And when we suffer, when we feel pain, we say, oh my gosh, I'm failing. I shouldn't be suffering. I shouldn't be feeling this pain. If we imagine, however, that suffering isn't imperfection, then we can imagine that perhaps God suffers. And then we don't have to feel ashamed of our own suffering. I know that there are theologians that talk about suffering as an imperfection. And I don't agree with that. I think that, for example, if you think about people who are suffering a lot, think about parents. Parents suffer always over their children. And I'm not a parent myself, but my parents, they suffered over me. And why did they suffer over me? Because they loved me, because they didn't want me to feel pain or they didn't want me to make poor decisions. And yet they couldn't always do something to prevent me from feeling pain or, or prevent me from making poor decisions. But because they loved me, they felt the suffering. And I don't feel like that was an imperfection or weakness in them, even though they were imperfect parents or they were weak at times. But God, I think, does experience suffering and that is not an imperfection in, in him. As a new parent, I, I want to go a step even further than that and say that the love and joy and the suffering are not even are not opposite ends of the same right. pole. They are really close to each other. Right. They are bound up together as with a human brain in a human relational context. That is to say with my brain and the brain of my wife and our, and the physical embodiment of our life and our son, it is impossible to conceive of loving him without suffering over him. Right. They are they are completely so we can either say that God loves us in a way that is wholly different from the way that we love. Okay, fine, but then I don't think I have any language for I don't think I really know what it means for God to love me if God's love is so unrelated to the way that I love, or we say God suffers because suffering is inherent in love. I don't I mean I think those are the options, right? And I think when you it, a new parent, you know, I'm sure every sniffle, every cough, you're thinking, oh my gosh, what's going on here? And over time, if you continue to have children, you'll, you'll, will hear those sniffles and coughs. They will be of concern to you. You may have greater wisdom to know what will happen. And I think that God also has great wisdom, but I don't think that that negates the suffering when, you know, if your child is suffering and you, you know, that your child will get through it, it's still, it's still something that you, you suffer with that child. Right. You're kind of talking about worry at, the, you know, so like I might worry about, I might right. suffer because I'm worrying. And if I had greater wisdom, I wouldn't worry about that. But then there is the time when I'm not worrying. It's just like he got yelled at and knocked down at the playground or whatever. Mm -hmm. I know, I know he's fine. I'm not necessarily worried that's going to ruin his life, but like, oh my gosh, when he is sad, I am sad. Right. You know, it's not. Uh, and so the wisdom doesn't like, I don't, I, that, right? yeah, I think I reject an idea of wisdom and maybe this is, maybe this is more of a Buddhist idea of wisdom, of de wisdom as detachment that I, I can't fully affirm as a right. Western Christian guy, 
But I, I do think I reject, and I'm not saying you're proposing this, but I, I would reject a view of wisdom that says, well, when you're really wise, you don't feel any, you don't suffer anymore. No, I mean, your, your wisdom, I think, allows you to feel it more fully, but not to be despairing about it, you know, or, or something more like that. A great example from the scriptures is when Christ raises Lazarus from the dead. He knows what he's going to do. He knows Lazarus will, will be raised from the dead. He knows there'll be tremendous joy, but he stands at the tomb and he weeps. Yeah. And he he feels that feeling at the same time that he's about to bring about this incredible miracle. And so I don't think, I think that you're correct. Joy and suffering and love are intricately related. And in some ways, love is a double-edged sword. You know, when um, the prophet says to Mary, to Mary, your your heart will be pierced also. You know, there's a sense of she has this tremendous love for her son, but that's that love will also mean she will suffer with and for him as well. Because this idea is so central, I think, in in the kind of theology that you're developing, I, I just want to I want to linger here a little longer and bring I've, I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but I think it's been at least like a year or, or longer, but I've had at least one experience, a uh, sort of a contemplative, you know, prayerful experience where I had this deep well of pain around some family stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was family stuff. And, and I needed to, sometimes this happens for me. I, I have to get it out. I, I have to cry. It is, it is. It is like water left in the hose that just has to get out of the hose, you know? And I had an experience uh, where I was just bawling. I was mourning so fully. I mean, it's very good. And that exact feeling of crying and mourning and, and deep sadness turned a corner without a break. There was no, there was no middle feeling and went straight into joy and laughter and just complete relief and and almost exuberance, but peace, right? Mm-hmm. And it's the same feeling I felt when my son was born. It's the same joy I've felt many times in prayer. And that's a what I'm what I would call it here is an independent attestation. This is another, it's not related to my son. This was not related to this before I had kids. It's another example, another anecdote from my own life that sorrow and joy. Uh, mourning and 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 positive emotion are and love are connected. They're not separate. And so it's interesting that just reflecting on that. Oh, that's that was before Soren was born. Like that's just like another sort of angle. And it strikes me that this is probably going to be really important, right? With with the theology here, because if we are going to go with a theology that says no, 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 God doesn't suffer. God is above the fray. You know, these are separable uh, states. So if you're suffering, that means you're not loving or not experiencing joy or not plugged in to sort of God's reality. So I don't know. I just, I don't know if you have anything to add to that, but it it just seems worth tarrying here for a minute longer. People have different views of this idea of whether or not God can suffer. And I know theologians that I respect who would say, no, God can't suffer. But I do think with regard to mental illness and the experience of suffering that people have, for them to be told you must have joy, Christians should never experience pain, they shouldn't experience anguish or um, these things. The problem with that is that 
you know, if if God is viewed as never being able to experience suffering, and our goal is not to experience suffering and not to experience anguish, for one thing, we can't work through our suffering and and, and move out of mental illness, but also the whole experience of mental illness is one of sin. It's viewed as potentially flawed and that there's something spiritually wrong with the person. It's not a psychological ailment. It's also a spiritual flaw. So if we think that God can suffer, we might be more willing to admit our own suffering, willing to look at our own suffering, more courageous about facing our suffering and sharing it with others and finding comfort and support when we suffer. It's not that suffering is anything to be ashamed of. And then we can do just what you mentioned before. We can work through to move away and to overcome the things that afflict us. Yeah, thinking about uh, a result of sin or its opposite being sinned against, you talked about, uh, you know, adverse childhood experiences, right? These are examples when children are sinned against by their own communities, whether that be their family, parents, or their culture, poverty, right? All that kind of stuff. It also makes me think of another one of the subscales on the spiritual abuse scale is harmful God image. And we were talking about projection, how we can project ourself, or like you're saying, we can project our own understandings of some of these abstract concepts that apply to God. We can project those onto God. We can also project our spiritual leaders or former spiritual leaders or former spiritual communities onto God. And the harmful God image uh, is is to me the most interesting of all the subscales uh, on my own scale because it casts God as a villain. And mm -hmm. I think that's of particular theological interest because basically in no mainstream Christian theologies, all the way from Orthodox and Catholic to Pentecostal to whomever, is God ever a villain? The closest thing I can think of is in strict Calvinism, where God is, you know, if you're the reprobate, you might view God as a villain, but the Calvinist would say that you are wrong to view it that way because you actually deserve eternal hell or annihilation or whatever they believe in, and everything else is gravy. <laughs> so God's not actually a villain, but you could forgive someone maybe for feeling like God's a villain if you knew you weren't elect. That is a very, very small slice of people who would adhere to any kind of Christian doctrine. And in any other system, God is not the villain. God is the savior. God is the force of good. And yet people report th these experiences of, I feel as if God harmed me directly. I feel betrayed by God. Betrayed by God is such an interesting one to me because betrayal is such a fickle human thing to do. So I don't know. That's, a, that's another type of projection. Uh, maybe, I don't know if you think that there is some self-projection there for people who are experiencing a lot of despair, very, having very low views of themselves, for instance. It would be interesting. I could I could correlate my own data between that uh, scale and lack of self-esteem as a result of negative religious experiences and see if there's a connection. That I'll put a pin in that. I haven't looked at that yet. But I don't know. Do you have anything to say about, about that sort of additional type of projection uh, on to God in this sort of arena? I guess what I would say is it's possible that, you know, all our images of God, all our ideas of God are limited and flawed. And it's possible that 
someone imagined something of God. And because that imagining was limited and flawed, it couldn't take into consideration whatever it was that happened that the person said this was the betrayal. So it may be that the God that they imagined existed did betray them, but that God is not the real God. That there's a God beyond their imaginings who is greater even than their betrayal, and yet they haven't yet been able to work through this betrayal by the little God, the mini God of their imaginings, um, to see that there might be a God, another God beyond that. And I would say in life that I think that whether or not we come to a point where we feel betrayed by God, we have to work through all these little gods of our imaginings and keep letting those gods die for another bigger God to be resurrected. And all of our gods, you know, uh, they may be Orthodox Christian gods in our minds, but they're never big enough to fully encompass, you know, the God who is. And so I think people do feel betrayed. They do feel, and this is another thing too, people, when you talked about concepts of God, theologies of God, that's what people think. But what we think is not necessarily what we feel. You know, we can have an Orthodox idea of God and yet we feel that God has betrayed us, that God is yeah. awful, that God doesn't love us. And that's, I think, where faith has to happen at the level of where we feel and this sense of, okay, I I feel that God betrayed me, The yet I believe in this Orthodox God that is all loving and good. So my faith, I need to imagine maybe there's a God beyond what I what I am experiencing and, and this image of God in my mind and the image of God in my mind, that God that betrayed me has been, you know, is shattered now. I'm struggling to believe it all. But what if there's a God beyond that image? And that's what I, I honestly believe. I sometimes have told my students, you know, I've, I, I, in my lifetime, I have believed in many gods. And yet I am always a Christian. And that's because I have continually found that the God that I thought I believed in was not big enough for the God that I learn about little by little over time as I live my life. And I try to understand, you know, how is Orthodox theology related to this experience? Or how is, you know, the God of the Trinity related to this experience? So we have our minds and yet there is God and God is bigger than our minds. I love that. It seems to me like it has to be true. Yeah. And especially when I put that in conversation with like, basic brain development, cognitive development right. over the lifespan, lifespan development. Like, is it possible to normalize a view like that? It it seems like that would be so good for the church if we could normalize the idea that you will believe in five to 10 different gods throughout, throughout your Christian life. And you should expect that. But right. there's so much momentum against normalizing a view like that because theologians and faith statements and doctrinal commitments or whatever have a tendency to be so absolute. Right. And so it it's very hard to normalize that, but I wish we could. And I've had people normalize that for me. I, I've told the story before of a college professor of mine who I said, am I going to stop believing? And he's like, I don't mm -hmm. think you're going to stop I don't think you're going to stop believing, but it's going to be really different than it is right now. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and he was right, of course. 
And so I had some anticipation of that. Like I had some category for, for, for me, recognizing I was theologically liberal, for instance, and going that I had so much stigma around that, but I did have that word from my professor. And so, well, maybe that's what this is, you know, but, oh, I, I lament the difficulty in normalizing what you just said about, you know, spiritual development essentially over time. Yeah, what um, one of the reasons why I started to think about those things is that I heard someone one time talking about, you know, his long marriage to his wife of many decades. And he said, you know, I've been married to five different women and it's always been the same. It's been the same woman. And he talked about how she was changing all these years. And of course, I'm a psychologist. So what did I think? I thought, okay, did she change or did you change? And probably it was a combination of both because they're both human. But it started to make me think, you know, if we're Christian and we're trying to love God and understand God, we're always going to be in a state of growth. And God may seem very different to us from one point in our lives to another. And yet it may be that that our understanding of God just grows because it has to grow because it was first born in maybe a very, a much more limited environment, let's say, let's say, than what all of our life experience will be. And I sometimes, you know, I can, I can remember one time watching a film about um, this uh, particular church group. And there was a young boy in that film. He was maybe 11 years old and he was being um, raised in a Christian home, homeschooled. And he had very astute answers to every question that was asked of him about, about God and about theology and the faith. He knew just, he just rattled these off. And I thought to myself, oh, wow, I, I worry for him. He's going to get to college and meet people and have experiences that don't fit into this, this rubric. And then his faith will collapse. And that's heartbreaking because I think that, you know, it, you, just when you said that you asked this man, will I lose my, my faith? The look on your face was the sense of that will be so painful. Yeah. And I have definitely had experiences my in myself where I felt like there's something that I can't let go of that is so life-giving and good and so necessary for me to have. And so when I have had, I think, bigger ideas of God, more comprehensive of, of, of reality, there's something that continues to be there. And it's that loving God, that grace-filled God, that God that is goodness and truth and so wise. But if we, if we keep God in this tiny little box, it has to, it has to be shattered by our own life experience. And I think that, you know, C.S. Lewis called God the great iconoclast because he talked about in the great divorce, he talked about how God shatters our image of God, how he does it himself. Uh, because it must be shattered because it's too restrictive. And yet then there is the resurrection. I love it. Um, Let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk about that book that rarely gets mentioned on this podcast, the Bible. Okay. Those who join the Patreon campaign for You Have Permission get access to the Facebook group, which is for patrons only, an awesome online community. 
Yeah, we have to use Facebook, and there are probably better options than that, but there is no better option that basically everybody knows how to use, and so we live with that. Maybe someday someone will invent, or you know, enough people will gather around another platform. But for now, it is an awesome, encouraging, uh, resource-rich community. The other thing that patrons get for $5 a month is two exclusive episodes per month. And this month in January, they're going to come a little later in the month than usual. Jeffrey and I have had just a very chaotic uh, holiday season here and not a lot of downtime. But there are really cool things coming. I will most likely be discussing the film Mary Magdalene with Joaquin Phoenix and Rooney Mara with a friend of the show, Sari Martin Concepcion. I've got a four-part series coming up with Ariel from Trans Regret Snoopy Presents the Bible, former guest of this show, and she and I are going to do four episodes, one focused on a couple passages from each of the four Gospels. Those are going to be patron-only episodes. Uh, If you are a patron of either this show or her show, you'll be able to hear those episodes. Uh, And there's a few others. Chris Hoke, author of Wanted, former guest of Depolarize, is going to be interviewing me for a patron episode. And I think we're going to get into some really cool stuff. He does basically gang and prison ministry and also has uh, a big theological bent. And he has uh, an incredibly beautiful and poetic, theopoetic understanding of how Christianity makes sense in a very broken world. So... I would think that you'd be looking forward to those patron episodes and it might be a good time to join. If you aren't one now, you can go to patreon.com slash Dan Coke. It's five bucks a month. That link is in the show notes as well. Okay. Back to my conversation with Marsha. The 538 podcast, uh, politics podcast has a, a re- recurring segment called good use of polling, bad use of polling. Uh, and I would like where, where they're sort of poll expert political analysts talk about uh, various polls that have been in the news and they kind of grade that. So I want to do a modification of that with you. Good use of Bible, bad use of Bible okay. around mental illness. Let's start with bad use. So wh- okay. what are what are some common ways that the Bible is misread or misused. You, you, you briefly kind of, uh, you've hinted once or twice at this, but I, I think you could, we could get into a little bit of depth here and it might be freeing for people to sort of hear you uh, call out specific ways that, that they've been sort of, that they've had the Bible misused or misread at them by people around these issues. And then we'll move on to sort of, well, what are some other avenues of like how, what are good ways of using what we've got here in the text toward this issue? Well, I, uh, I can think of a couple of ways. Uh, one I have touched on before, but focusing on some scriptures and ignoring others. Um, so, for example, focusing on scriptures that encourage us to have joy without also realizing that there's a great deal of pain that's expressed in the scriptures by different heroes of the faith. In fact, Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane is an incredible anguish. And yet it seems like, you know, if we are not to feel anguish, if we're not to feel emotional pain, then the church is advising us to be more Christian even than Christ. And this is not something that we can attain, nor should we want to attain it. Another um, way that I think that the scriptures I misread is with regard specifically to demonic possession. You know, I have to confess when I was first writing my book and I knew I would, you know, be talking about this issue, I did not want to 
I did not want to study the scriptures having to do with demonic depression, demonic um, possession. It just seemed like, oh, no. But the amazing thing is that when I did dive into the New Testament and look at those different stories again and again, what I discovered is that typically they had to do with uh, physical ailments, not with what we might think of today are psychological issues, but blindness, deafness. And these are ailments that the church does not think of as related to a demonic uh, possession. The church what? has absorbed the modern medical understanding of blindness and deafness. So that is so interesting. What's going on there? That's so, that's so weird. Like we, that is mind blowing that like what the actual text says is demonic possession is all the stuff that no one today would say is demonic possession. And these other, it's, it's basically just like, oh, something we don't understand that must be demons. That's how it seems to me. It's a devil in the gaps approach to theology. We don't get this. It must be demonic stuff. And if you, if you think about it, I mean, if you're, if eyesight and the loss of eyesight is related to demonic possession, every time someone had to get their eyeglasses, you know, um, upgraded or a new prescription, it would be, okay, we have to do a exorcism for your eyes, but nobody in the church thinks that way. We all, you know, I, you and I both are sitting here wearing glasses, but when it comes to mental illness, when it comes to psychosis, people think, oh, this must be something related to demonic issues. And that's, can you imagine? I mean, you're, you have tremendous depression, anxiety. You are having psychotic experiences usually, which are incredibly painful. And then someone says, oh, by the way, you know, we think that you may have a demon. That's just throwing so much more pain onto their anguish as it is if there's ever a time to to not be wrong about demons right <laughs> to not like over to over demonize something it would be someone with mental illness yeah they are they are the person who is least capable of handling right. someone being wrong uh, on a claim like that of of you know eternal sort of all powerful importance it, it you you would think we would want to have like extra humility around like to to make sure we don't get that one wrong whereas if you tell someone who's like man you know what you know what dan i think you're really dealing with pride these days uh you seem to really think you're looking good but i can see that you've put on some weight like do you think that maybe you have a demon a demon of pride well with my healthy ego, I might be able to go, okay, I think that's a little bit, all right, I don't know that it's a demon. I think I do have an ego problem. But to tell someone who is schizophrenic or has debilitating anxiety or deep depression, well, they're the kind of person who's going to be like, is it a demon? And that just compounds their suffering. Right. And then if you think about that as well, if if they suddenly imagine, does God look at me and see something demonic? Mm. You know, that would be very frightening, too. It, 
increases the possibility that they might feel alienated from God or that God would be rejecting of them. So it's incredibly harmful. So I think that although I didn't want to kind of do this deep dive into the the scriptures on demonic possession, it actually was very illuminating because that is how the ancient world understood so many different physical ailments. They didn't really understand mental illness. They they were aware that of it. And you know that from, if you look at David, uh, there are stories where he talks about pretending to be mad and there's an awareness of there's something that happens uh, for some people, but there's not clear evidence that that mental illness was associated with demonic possession. There's the one story of the the man who um, the um, garrison demoniac, and he has very peculiar behavior. And it does appear that he may have some mental disorder from our perspective, but that's one story. All the other stories have to do with uh, physical ailments. So I think that, you know, our, our lack of understanding of mental illness in the modern world has made it easier for people to say, oh, well, let's put the demonic label on this. Whereas our understanding of what's happening for a person's vision, for their hearing, whether or not they're mute, even there's a, a story with a woman who is bent over and we might think that she has arthritis if we look at it from a modern perspective. Um, we don't think about that today in terms of Satan's influence. Or a blood clotting disorder, right? right. The the woman who can't who keeps bleeding. Right. You know, right. We don't think of that. We would never say to someone that's a demon. Right. <laughs> and that's different. I guess that's just a healing story. But even most of the healing stories, I would imagine, follow the same paradigm. They're not primarily mental health healing. Right. They are even even like I don't think that they I don't think there's anything in the text to suggest that the woman, the bleeding woman had a demon. But it's still the kind of stuff over which Jesus has dominion in these stories. And it's a it's a blood clot. I mean, it's like, you know, right. it's like a clotting disorder. And nobody today would say that would be. You know, they might want to get healed from it, but they wouldn't say there's anything sort of spiritual forces going on there. I think, too, um, Jesus does incredible healing miracles. There's no question about that. And that's part of how he helped people to become aware that the power of God was with him and he was ushering in a new age and he was ushering in the kingdom of God. However, there are many times in the scriptures where healing doesn't happen in that kind of fantastical way or where um, advice is given to people to do something that's very ordinary, that's very part of their culture. Paul tells Timothy, by the way, you have all these stomach ailments. Why don't you have a little wine with your meals instead of water? And that's, he's just trying to help him physically. And in that time, um, water could be polluted. It could be contaminated. It could be related to stomach ailments and wine would be better for him to do. He didn't. And here's Paul, who is someone who, who is, he has the gift of healing. He's able to administer healing to people. He tells this to Timothy, one of his um, disciples to do this, this very simple change in his patterns to to help him with the physical problem. And Paul isn't even able to heal himself of whatever affliction he he tries to describe in uh, Corinthians, where he's talking about the thorn in the flesh. So I think that there's this kind of bizarre expectation 
that the way that God will work to help us and heal us will always be sort of instantaneous. We'll have kind of the flavor of the miraculous around it. And that if that doesn't happen, there's something that we're doing wrong, that we don't have faith when actually I think that God wants more often than than not to work in very simple, ordinary ways through each other, through the wind, wisdom that they are, we are gathering over the ages about what it is to be hus- human of our physical bodies, our brains. And sometimes people take one story in the scriptures, they take one passage and they think that that should apply to every situation. So those are some of the ways, just a few of the ways that people misread the Bible to their detriment, you know, to, to create greater misunderstanding of mental illness, as well as other aspects of life, I would argue. And you're already kind of starting to talk about the, the positive ways that we can use scripture. So the, the example of Paul talking to Timothy is actually, I've never noticed that that's a really good one. He's like, Hey, why don't you like do this little thing? You know, why don't you, uh, eat some fresh raw garlic each day for your, you know, like it's basically just a, it's a folk remedy, uh, but it's true because back then wine was safer than water to drink. And perhaps there was a bacterial gut thing we would say now that heat was going on and he's contributing to that by drinking unsterile water, you know, and if he drank sterile wine with his meals, like what would that do? And, and that is so similar to saying to someone in 2021, 2022, uh, why don't you go talk to a therapist about that? I mean, it's like, or, you know, go see your primary care physician. It's not, it's basically, it is the first century version of go see your therapist. It is, uh, you know, it, there's there's not a meaningful difference there. It doesn't seem to me. Yeah. And in the first century, alcohol was used for a variety of ailments. It was considered, as you say, a folk remedy. And I I find it, given that that Paul, who had the gift of healing, said this to one of his beloved disciples here, take a folk remedy rather than, you know, said, I'll be there and I'm going to heal you of this. And it's going to be instantaneous. I think would Paul, you know, not also say to Timothy, by the way, make available to yourself what, um, what we have to bring whatever healing you need. And if, if they were in the 21st century, potentially Paul would have a lot more to recommend to Timothy. This verse about Paul saying, go ahead and have a little wine um, with your meals. It's one of those verses that it's sort of like a flyover verse. You just sort of read it and don't even read it and don't think about what are the implications of this. This man who has seen so many miracles and through whom God has done so many miracles, he's telling him to do this very basic, ordinary thing. And maybe it's okay for us to do basic, ordinary things and maybe they'll help. Yeah. Uh, what else? What, what else have you uncovered in the scripture that, you know, you think is a, a useful uh, and a helpful way of bringing these into the conversation? Well, if you look, for example, at the Psalms, the Psalms have every emotion that humans can experience and they're present there without judgment. Mm. The Psalms are a way for the, the, the psalmist to express all of their feelings, their concerns, their anxieties, and to bring them to God. You know, if the psalmist had incredible anger toward um, his enemies, he brought that to God. 
and there's safety there. There's a way um, to express that to God and to know that God can hold that. You know, therapists talk about containing the um, emotion of the client and God can contain that. We can bring that to God. It's safe. God can help us with that. And there isn't judgment. At the same time, there's not you know, any affirmation that, oh, by the way, you know, go out there and do this violent thing that you're, that you're feeling. It's just a feeling. I think that um, hymns in the church also are a way for people to safely express all kinds of different emotions. And hymns are an extension of the Psalms of the ancient Israelite community. But there's a sense in which the fact that they are in the Bible, that they're believed to be, you know, part of the canon is a way of saying that God acknowledges and understands the incredible pain that people experience and that we are going to experience pain in this life. In fact, Christ says you will have many tri tribulations in this world, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And I don't think he says be of good cheer, meaning you're not allowed to feel bad. He's just said you will have tribulations, but the sense that ultimately we have hope. We have hope in the midst of our, even in the midst of despair. I can say, because I was not a Christian for um, my early life, that the way I feel when I feel very low, when I have experienced depression, uh, it's entirely different than the kind of despair I had when I wasn't a Christian. There's just mm. the sense that um, for me personally, before I was a Christian, and I can only speak for myself, that the sense of despair was like the earth opening up and there's nothing beneath you. But for me as a Christian, it's always like there's a hope beyond hope that I don't necessarily understand and I don't have to understand it. I don't have to put, you know, make things make sense. But there, there are things beyond me. There's, there's a transcendent world that I don't understand but that God has a hold of me, even when I don't have a hold of God. And I don't have to understand this, even though I may feel terrible. So anyways, I got there from the Psalms and the Psalms are really a powerful demonstration of how, how life can be very painful. And yet we don't have to keep that from God, that God is fully aware of that. And that um, the people that God loves experience those things. I love thinking about the faith of, you know, pre-Jesus Israelites or early church folks or whomever through an experiential lens because their moments felt like my moments. Mm -hmm. You know, we're asking a lot of different questions. Obviously, I have access to all kinds of information they didn't have access to, and I live in a, a different social context than they lived in. But the basics of the human experience would basically be the same, right? Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of they would have the same neurotransmitters, therefore they would have the same feelings of joy, sadness, you know, anxiety, whatever, all that stuff is the same. And of course I don't have access to anyone else's phenomenological experience, but we can assume a lot of continuity. And, you know, I, I came across some Walter Brueggemann stuff, Old Testament scholar, around the Lament Psalms when I was working on that paper. And first of all, he said, there's no doubt that these Lament Psalms had an important function in the religious life of the Israelites mm -hmm. before the birth of Christ. So it is a regular part of their practice, uh, whether or not they're feeling lament that day, right? It's like, but they are, they are processing it. They're not bypassing it. And then furthermore, he identifies 
a three phase movement of articulation of hurt and anger, submission of those to God, and then relinquishment of the hurt and anger. In other words, it is a processing of grief. It's a processing of negative feelings in the presence of God, sanctioned by God. And I just think like, man, I I don't have access to this, but I, I wish I had access to like what it would feel like to be going through all of that in that time, let's say in 700 BC or something, you know, pre-exile or mid-exile or whatever. Like, you know, I might think that I know more and in a sense I do know more, but a lot of the language that you were using of there is a transcendent world that I don't understand. Well, that is a hundred percent true. Uh, I don't know what dark energy and dark matter are. I don't know if there are additional, if there are more than four dimensions, assuming time to be the fourth. I don't know if there is a multiverse. I don't know how universes begin and end. I don't know. Uh, I don't know if the fine tuning data and that we have, what that points. I don't have any of this. I don't know. I don't know what happens when we die. I don't know if our consciousness extends or not. What I do know is that I experience something that must be profoundly similar at the experiential, neurological, psychological level when I have religious experience, as did David and the other psalmists or whoever else, because I have the same kind of brain that they had. Mm -hmm. And they had more limitations in some sense and that we've, we've sorted out some, we know why wine is better than water now, you know, for your gut or whatever, but, but we still don't have all the things I just mentioned. We don't know what those things are. And I don't know. So something was really stirring in me listening to you sort of lay out your own take on that. And it seemed to connect. And I, I maybe tried to do too much there with that series of, of comments, but I'm curious if you have any reaction to that. Well, I do think one of the reasons why the Bible is still current and relevant is because they're people and they do have similar experiences, even though, I mean, it's important for us, I think, to understand the historical and cultural context of their experience to be able to say exactly how this, this, or probably how this might relate to us. And there's a lot of ways that they may do things that we don't understand. But once we understand, we go, oh, okay, I understand. You know, so guilt, people, that is a common experience (laughs) that people have or anger or shame or confusion. And the the heroes of the scripture, they do experience all those things. In fact, you were talking before about feeling betrayed by God. There's one um, story when Moses is saying to God, hey, I came back here to deal with Pharaoh and to, you know, to bring the Israelites out of Egypt and you haven't helped me at all. I mean, you have just not been there. And and Moses is feeling betrayed and it is basically telling God, you know, what's up with this? Where are you, God? And that sense of, you know, we can be ourselves. We can be ourselves with God. It's not a surprise. <laughs> and And that includes where we are in this moment and how we are responding to all kinds of forces that we don't understand. You know, why is it that 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 God tells Moses, go down and bring my people out of uh, Egypt? And he goes down there and he has one one asshole after another. So I think, you know, we can take peace in that. And the, the reason why the Bible is relevant and it has been relevant. And I 
believe it will be relevant is because there's there is something also about ourselves that transcends this life and that potentially includes our ever evolving selves and our knowledge and connection with God as it evolves. Well, I want to I want to end by giving a few minutes to sort of the future. You know, you mentioned this work, uh, this field, you know, integrating theology and what we know of mental illness is in its infancy. I would argue <laughs> being in my third year of a doctoral program of psychology, what we know about mental illness is in its infancy. I mean, right. full stop. The integrating aspect is even is maybe embryonic, right. not even infancy. And so that is challenging. It's also really exciting. And it got me, it got my ears perked up when you said that. And I wanted to give you a few minutes to just talk about where you see movement, where you find hope in that, what you, what you think might be coming down the line. Can you envision sort of rough language for the kinds of things that you would hope that we're moving toward in these fields? I guess I would say a few different things. One is that I just have this fantasy. I've had this fantasy all my life and it's likely that, well, it may be that I will not see this in my life. But one of the things that I hope someday happens is that there are actually in institutions of higher learning in at seminaries and at universities, there are programs that are devoted to integration of many different uh, disciplines and theology. Because as we go into the 21st century, we're learning so much and we have such technological advancements and we have global communication and the church needs to be able to help people to have a worldview that is both um, faithful to the true Christian witness, um, the Orthodox Christian witness through the ages, but also helps them to be able to continually grow with the culture as our our knowledge of what it is to be human and what the created world is expands exponentially we christians need to to be able to for example be able to speak into issues about artificial intelligence you know there are psychologists who have compared uh, computer models of intelligence with the human mind when and because we have a way of understanding what it is to be human that that is not exclusively secular, that has material components, but it's not exclusively material, uh, I think we would want to communicate and speak into that discipline. So that's one of the things that I hope eventually will happen down the line. But in the meantime, one thing that's giving me hope is that I see more and more people like yourself who are contributing to this dialogue, who are interested and fascinated and who write about it, who do research about it, who read books about it, and just inform the next generation of Christians, the next generation of leaders, of pastors. I think there's always, always hope, even though sometimes, you know, I I continue, for example, to see students who have been broken in their family systems because of how families responded, their religious families responded to their own mental disorder. And yet the world is always in flux. God is a constant, but the world's in flux and we're continually growing and learning. And so I think there's always hope. And I think what endures is what is true. Sometimes it takes a long time for things that are false to kind of fall away and collapse, but they don't have staying power. The truth, I do believe, 
endures because it is true. And that is a power greater than falsehood. And just as I think um, an individual has to have the experience of, of a limited God shattering, in the church, theology has changed. Even as it's been orthodox, it's changed. There was a time when the uh, church believed that all of the planets orbited around the earth, and including the sun, and that theology had to change. There was a time when the church endorsed, or parts of the church endorsed and supported slavery, and other parts of the church said, no, that is false theology, that is not true. And our theology as a whole had to change within even this, this orthodox framework. And I think that that will continue to happen. You know, what's true will endure. What's false will have to collapse. As you said, psychology is not going away. Right. Uh, and so that's good news for those of us who want to put it in conversation with uh, Christian thought and even uh, trans interreligious thought. Um, Dr. Webb, thank you so much for your time. I have so much more I could ask you about, but we, we're out of time. I will put a link up to this book, Toward a Theology of Psychological Disorder, uh, in the show notes. Uh, anything else you want people to know if they want to be in touch with your work? Um, well, just thank you for inviting me on. And I really um, enjoyed talking with you and discussing these different issues. And I think I will leave it at that. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks.